You're listening to a live recorded teaching from the Sunday Gathering at the Heights Church in Denver, Colorado. We hope that this teaching is an encouragement to you. To find out more about the Heights Church, visit theheightsdenver.com. for joining us. You can have a seat. My name is Erica, and I'm a member here at the Heights. We're going to spend time in God's Word together now. Today's teaching comes from 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 9. The large numbers are the chapters, and the small numbers are the verses in the Bibles in front of you. Let's hear what God has to speak to us today. Paul, called an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Sosthenes, our brother. To the church of God at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints, with all those in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of the grace of God given to you in Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in him in every way, in all speech and all knowledge. In this way, the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will also strengthen you to the end so that you will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. You were called by him into faith fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for giving us the gift of your word. We ask that you speak clearly to us through it today. Help us not to just listen, but to truly obey it for our joy and for your glory. Amen. Amen. Let's give it up for Erica. Thank you, Erica, for reading God's word for us. Uh, Well, very good morning to you guys. How are we doing? 1045. Good. I love it. Well, today is a great day, exciting day. We're kicking off uh, our teaching series through the book of 1 Corinthians, which is really exciting. And uh, w- one of the values we have around here is the value of Bible. Man, we just love the Bible around here. Uh, we believe that the Bible is the Word of God. Uh, it's the primary place that God speaks to us, to us today. So where we hear it, trust it, and obey it, we flourish as human beings uh, and can encounter the living God. And so, man, really excited uh, to dive into this teaching series together. Uh, Because we value Bible, uh, one of the things we do every year is we pick a book of the Bible and walk all the way through it section by section. So we will spend the majority of the rest of this year uh, doing that through the book of 1 Corinthians, kind of letting it set the agenda for us instead of us setting the agenda, which we we really love to do. I want to highlight a a resource for you really quickly before we dive in. If you'll look at this in the seat back in front of you, uh, there should be one of these. It's just a little scripture notebook. If you would grab that, I'm not asking you to sign up for anything. This is a free, free resource for you, okay? Um, and uh, what this is, is it's a printout of the book of 1 Corinthians in the translation we're going to be using. And uh, you can grab that. We, we should, if you don't see one right in front of you, just like move down the row. Uh, the 9 a.m. may have taken some. If you don't get one, please let us know. And uh, this is a really cool, a really cool thing where, you know, you're, you're, you're smart enough, you've opened it, but on one side is the scripture text, on the other side is a, is a place where you can take notes. And uh, man, as we work through this, you can bring that back next week and just take notes as we journey through. And the reason I want to encourage you to do this, I saw so many people in the 9 a.m. doing this, is because we believe God wants to speak to you. Uh, we believe that as we journey through this series, as we open up the word of God each week, that he is speaking. And so the question as we journey together through this is not, man, 
did God speak? Was he speaking? The question is, man, were we paying attention and ready to receive? And so grab one of these, uh, fill it out as we go. Really excited for that. So many people in the 9 a.m. were like, man, I love this. Uh, I love this so much. And uh, they, took, they took their little notebooks home like little students and were like, I'll bring it back next week. Um, so anyways, uh, anyways, let me pray for us. Uh, invite the Holy Spirit to come and work in the room as we open up the word together. And then we will, then we will dive in. Uh, Lord Jesus, thank you for your goodness. Uh, thank you that you give joy. Uh, thank you that you are gentle and lowly, and you invite us who uh, are messy and uh, not put together and struggling in so many ways to come and receive grace. Uh, we enter into this place all over the place uh, emotionally. Uh, some of us are really down and out um, and struggling emotionally to sing and engage. Others of us are joyful. Uh, we're full of joy. We've gotten good news this week. And so no matter where we're at emotionally, come and meet us. We're also all over the place spiritually, God. Uh, some people are here and they're like, man, I'm ready to journey through 1 Corinthians. And others are here going, man, I don't even, I don't even know if I want to do this Jesus thing anymore. So God, meet us along the spiritual spectrum. Come, Holy Spirit. Uh, give us hearts ready to receive, ears ready to hear, hands ready to obey. Uh, I pray that you would help me, Holy Spirit. Uh, give me uh, a sharp mind and words to speak. Give me a prophetic edge to my preaching. I need your help in my weakness. And uh, we pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Amen. Well, we started The Heights about seven years ago uh, in mine and Allie's living room apartment. Uh, there were about seven of us and our dog. We've since then kicked our dog out of the church. He was the most distracting member of our church. And so we said, you cannot, you cannot be here. Um, and so we started about seven years ago. And uh, we just started with man, this very simple vision of joining God in personal and citywide renewal through making disciples of Jesus and just kind of seeing what God would do. And, uh, man, God has been so kind to our church. We've seen so many people come to faith. We've seen Jesus build his church. We've seen people go public in the horse trough that's sometimes right over here with their faith through baptism. We've seen one another grow in our love for God and uh, love for people. I mean, it's been really cool. Uh, we just highlighted how we're partnering with Jesus on Colfax, and we've served so many people in the life of our city. Uh, a few weeks ago, 120 people from the life of our church signed up to do mercy and justice here in the city. Man, God has been uh, really uniquely kind to our church. Uh, it's been an amazing work of God's grace. But the reality is, we are still just a young church. Uh, we are six years old. Uh, if you, I relate that to my daughter, who's almost six. We are in kindergarten as a church. We are a bunch of kindergartners in our life together. And uh, we are, man, we are a church that's battling with sin, trying to figure out what it looks like uh, to follow Jesus faithfully in a highly complex urban center that's kind of like spiritually disengaged uh, like Denver. Man, and man, it can be really challenging to follow Jesus and be faithful uh, to Jesus in a place like Denver. But here's uh, the really comforting thing to consider, that we are not the first church to be in that situation. Like, and very specifically, on an individual level, whatever like hardship you're, follow, you're, you're finding and as you follow Jesus in everyday life, like you are not the first follower of Jesus to be in that situation. Um, we're not the first church to struggle with sin and enter in here and be like, man, I'm broken, I messed up, I don't know where to go from here. We aren't the first church to try to navigate issues of sexuality whenever it comes to culture. We are not the first church to navigate issues of gender or how to handle our money or division in the life of the church or theological disagreements. Because these things are the very things that the church in Corinth was navigating 2,000 years ago. Like nothing is new under the sun. 
Uh, 1 Corinthians is a letter to a young urban church. Uh, Likely the church was about five years old when the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the church in Corinth. Very similar to us. We're about a year older than the church in Corinth whenever Paul wrote this letter to them. Uh, And this church in Corinth is super messy, okay? And we're going to get deep into the mess that the church of Corinth is. Super messy, but unbelievably loved by God. It's like, man, and both of these things are true. Uh, for the church in Corinth. And if I, was, if I were to summarize the big theme of this, uh, of this letter that we call 1 Corinthians, that we find in the New Testament, we would summarize it like this. We'll put the big theme up on the screen. It's this, that God loves us in our mess, but he loves us too much to leave us in it. And every week we're going to come back to this big theme. This is the big theme of the letter of 1 Corinthians, that God loves us in our mess, That, man, you don't have to be cleaned up. You don't have to be a follower of Jesus. You don't have to have have your life together on the right trajectory for God to love you. That God loves us in our mess. But here's the other reality, and we're going to come back to this week after week after week. He also loves us too much to just affirm us and leave us in it. He loves us. And this is what we're going to see week after week after week. And here's why I love this. Here's why I love this on a really practical note, just to kind of bring this down into life. Because whenever you roll into church in 2023, it can, fe- it can be easy to feel just kind of like this reality that everybody has their life together and is doing okay except for you. And it's like, man, it's like you roll in here and you're like, okay, all of these people probably just had the best week ever. They spent like an hour reading their Bible every morning, Monday through Saturday. Then they turned on some worship music, whatever their worship music is. They had this amazing experience with the power of the Holy Spirit every day to start their day. They invited people to church every day and everybody's just crushing it except for me. And it's really easy to feel like that whenever you roll into a room like this. But the reality is, man, if you lift up the hood on any church, okay, whether it's the church in Corinth 2,000 years ago or the Heights Church in 2023, what you're going to find is that churches are messy, okay? And here's the reason, here's the reason churches are messy. Here's the reason our church is messy. It's because churches are made up of individual people who are messy, okay? And what this letter is all about is that God loves us in our mess, whatever mess we're in in life. But he loves us too much to leave us in it. In fact, we've got some sermon artwork that was uh, created by uh, Stephen Reese. And I love this. We'll put the sermon artwork back up here. And the sermon artwork is to help us remember this big idea every week as we come to this letter that God loves us in our mess, but he loves us too much to leave us in it. You have the box, which represents God's beautiful design of flourishing. It's like God, it's like, man, if you will come and you will live my way in these parameters that I've created life to be lived in, you will flourish as individual, as individuals. But then you have the church in Corinth that's all over the place, and you're going to see the all over the placeness of the church in Corinth that's living all kinds of different ways, and God is lovingly finding them in their mess every week, and he's meeting us in our mess in the same way, and he's inviting us back into his way of flourishing. And it's, this is what the book is all about. It's that God loves us in our mess, but he loves us too much to leave, it, leave us in it. And over and over and over again, God's going to meet the people in Corinth And he's going to meet us in all of the messes of life and go, hey, I love you. And I want to invite you by grace back into my way of flourishing. That is what this book of the Bible is all about. So let's dive in. Uh, Let's start in verse 1 and just get our hands dirty in the text. Verse 1 says this. It says, Paul, 
We're going to talk about Paul for just a few minutes here in just a second. Called as an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will. So he says, man, I've been called by God as an apostle. Apostle, the word apostle is just a fancy word for sent one. I've been sent by God as a leader of the church. And Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God in Corinth. So the very first thing we see is that this uh, letter was written by a guy named Paul. And, uh, and we meet another guy right after we get introduced to Paul named Sosthenes. And here's how this would have worked. Uh, Sosthenes was Paul's scribe. Okay, and so uh, he's kind of like writing the book down. So if you were, if you were to kind of like go back uh, 2,000 years ago and see how the book of 1 Corinthians was written, Paul would have been like wandering around the room or the jail cell, j- jail cell or whatever, and Sosthenes would have been sitting there, and Paul's like, okay, I want to say this to the church in Corinth. No, 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 I don't want to say it that way. Mark that out, and Sosthenes would have been like... <laughs> And then he would have been like, I want to say it this way, I want to say it this way. And that's how this book of the Bible was written. It was written by Paul and Sosthenes. Paul's the primary speaker of the book, and Sosthenes is his scribe. And then we find out that this book is written to the church of God. And so I love this, that the church, in Paul's mind, this church that is such a mess, still belongs to God, okay? They haven't, God hasn't left them. We're going to get into that here in just a second. And it's the church of God at Corinth. So to, uh, dip ourselves, to, to dip into this book, we need to understand a little bit about two things. We need to understand a little bit more about Paul, and we need to understand a little bit more about the city of Corinth, okay, and where this, where this letter is being written to. So uh, the Apostle Paul, who's writing this letter, isn't the kind of guy that you would think would write a letter of the New Testament. He did not grow up in the church singing Jesus Loves Me. He was not like a little Sunday school kid down in the Heights Kids right now. Uh, in fact, he is one of the greatest opposers of the work of Jesus when we meet him in the scriptures. Whenever we meet the apostle Paul, his name is actually Saul, and so this is confusing for people, but in the New Testament, Saul and Paul are the same person. Uh, Jesus changes his name when he meets Jesus, but we meet Saul in Acts chapter 8, and whenever we meet Saul in Acts chapter 8, we meet him as like the primary opposition to the way of Jesus. Like he is, you will not meet a man who is more anti-Jesus You will not meet a man who's more like anti-movement of the early church. You will not meet a man who hates the church more than Saul when we meet Saul in Acts chapter 8. In fact, in Acts chapter 8, when we meet Saul, he uh, is giving giving his his, uh, his, uh, affirmation of the murder of one of the very first followers of Jesus, a guy named Stephen. Like in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, he goes, they've got Stephen. Saul, you want us to kill him? Yeah, kill him. That's Acts chapter 8, verse 1. This is Saul. But what's amazing, what what happens is in Acts chapter 9, Saul meets Jesus. He meets the risen Jesus, and he's radically converted to the way of Jesus, and it changes everything. He's given a new identity marked by a new new name, Paul, and so he goes from Saul to Paul, and he's given a new mission. And what you see play out in the rest of the book of Acts with this radical conversion of Saul to Paul is that Saul goes from being a persecutor of the church to a planter of churches. It's like, man, if, and here's what we're supposed to see. It's like, man, when we read the story of Paul, it's like, man, if Jesus can change Paul, he can change anybody, right? If he can change Paul, he can change anybody. I just imagine the people that knew, knew Saul as he was the persecutor of the church and seeing the new Saul who becomes Paul and going, man, I guess if Jesus can change him, he can change anybody, right? And there's a couple things that I just want to double click on before we dive deeper into uh, 1 Corinthians. Uh, here's what I would say. First, first, I'll say this. Man, if you're here and you find yourself in your internal being kind of like antagonistic to the way of Jesus, where you're like, man, I don't even know why I'm here. I don't want anything to do with Jesus. I'm wrestling with hard questions. If you find yourself feeling that way, 
you need to know that Jesus has you here because he loves you and he wants you. And if Jesus can change Paul's life, he can change yours. Like, this is just true. I was, uh, I, I was reminded that this kind of conversion is still, like, radical conversion is still happening today. On, on Thursday, uh, Thursday morning, I was at this meeting with a bunch of church planters from around, uh, around the area. And I was sitting next to a friend of mine who's an Ethiopian church planter named Eliyu. And we've helped Eliyu uh, kind of, like, plant his church uh, fi- financially. We've given him some money and been down and gi- given him hugs. And he, he's, become a, he's become a friend of mine. He's planting a church down in Aurora uh, for Ethiopians. And I, and I love this. And Elijah told me this story uh, about, this, uh, about this friend of his that used to persecute him. And for him, it was like very normal um, to tell me this story. And I, my jaw was on the floor. But he, he had this friend named Tizital. And he goes, hey, man, Tizital, a few years ago, he, he was, he's become my friend, but he was persecuting me. And I was like, really? And he goes, yeah, he was, a, he was a Coptic priest from the Ethiopian church who had moved over here. And he heard about what I was trying to do and planting my church and be, be a part of the movement of Jesus here in the city, and he was doing nothing but try to stop me. He was shutting me down. He was trying to find the people that were coming to my church and going, you don't want to trust that guy. Well, he goes, I kept sharing the good news of Jesus with Tizatau, and now Tizatau's a Christian, and he's one of my church planters out of my church. And my jaw was like on the floor, and I was like, are you kidding me? But for, but for Eliyu, this was like, this is what happens, you know? This is what happens. And I was just so reminded that Jesus can change anybody. If you're sitting here today and you're like, man, I don't know if Jesus can change me, you need to know that you might be like Tizatau and you might be like Saul, that Jesus can change your life. And in fact, Jesus not only can change your life, but you might go from being like, you might go from being super antagonistic to the church to on the stage one day preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. Like that might be you. Jesus still does it. Jesus still does it. Amazing. The second thing that, that the story uh, of the Apostle Paul shows us is this, that we should never get up, give up on anybody. Like, if you're here and you follow Jesus, uh, man, the story of the Apostle Paul, the guy who wrote this letter to the church, one of the greatest church planners to ever live, uh, you need to know that, you sh- that it shows us that we should not give up on anybody. The people that are close to us but far from God that we're praying for, it's like, man, keep praying, keep inviting. Jesus can change anybody's life. This is the story of Paul. Anyways, Paul, uh, he, he goes from a persecutor of the church to a planter of churches, and he's starting churches everywhere. And uh, he goes on a couple of missionary journeys in the book of Acts. You can read about Paul's missionary journeys uh, later on in the book of Acts. And in Acts 18, he rolls into a city called Corinth to start calling people to follow Jesus and plant a church uh, in the heart of the city. And he plants and pastors the church in Corinth for about 18 months. So Paul plants this church, and then he pastors it for about a year and a half. Now, we need to know a little bit about Corinth to understand this letter. And the things I'm about to uh, roll out to you about what defines the city of Corinth is super important for us to understand what Paul is talking about in this letter. Corinth uh, was in Greece, but it was under the power of the Roman Empire, and it was the largest and most influential uh, city in the country of Greece at the time. You might, whenever you think Greece, you might think of ancient Athens. Corinth was both larger and more inf- in influential than the city of Athens, Ma- a city of massive importance. And its geography is really important to its influence as well. It's set on a six-mile-wide strip of land where all kinds of commerce and trade would have been happening. And so it was a port city and a place where all kinds of different people from the surrounding region would converge and do business together and exchange ideas. So whenever you think about the city of Corinth, it was probably about fifty to 60,000 people, which is a very large city in that time. And uh, it was very diverse, pluralistic, and it was kind of like a bustling center of business. 
Now, if you want to understand the culture of Corinth, you need to kind of understand four ideas or four things that stood at the heart of the city of Corinth. And as I introduce these to you, you're going to go, wow, Corinth sounds a whole lot like Denver, okay? Like a whole lot like Denver. There are four things that defined the cultural makeup of the city of Corinth. Sex, money, play, and spirituality. If you want to understand Corinth, you need to understand these four things. Sex, money, play, and spirituality. So let's have, have a little bit of a word on each of these. First, sex. Corinth loved their sex. They loved their sex. In fact, whenever you rolled into the, whenever you rolled into the city, one of the first things you would have noticed in the heart of the city was a, uh, was a, a giant statue of the, the goddess Aphrodite. And uh, Aphrodite is the Greek goddess of love who is known for having many lovers. And she was heavily worshipped in the city of Corinth. Everything kind of like revolved around her in the city of Corinth. And they loved their sex. In fact, the word aphrodisiac we get from Aphrodite, which is something that stimulates sex and stimulates sexual pleasure. They loved their sex. And they loved their sex so much, this is wild, that the, the word Corinth actually became a verb. Okay? And to Corinth someone meant to, in modern day language, meant to hook up with them. And this was, a, this was a widely used term in that day, that to Corinth somebody was to hook up. Corinth was known as the sex city. It's like, it's kind of like the modern day Vegas or something. It's like, that's how you, it's a sin city, sex city, anything goes in that city. In fact, um, I told you that this was a port city. There was kind of like a, there was a saying among the sailors uh, that would float around. It was kind of like a proverb that was that's been found in both Greek and Latin about the city of Corinth and about the like hypersexualized nature of the city of Corinth. They would, they would say this, not for every man is the voyage to Corinth. You know, you might not be able to handle Corinth. Woo! You know, it is spicy. It's spicy in Corinth. You're welcome, guys. Can you guys laugh at that? My gosh. <laughs> I'm like, thank you. Yeah, not everybody. You're like, this is how bad Corinth is. And it's like, man, how much does this sound like Denver? It's like the hookup scene, the pornography that runs rampant. It's like, my gosh, we, we love our sex, too. We love our sex, too. Two is money. Uh, this was a port city and a center of commerce, so the love of, of money and status and power marked the city. It was everywhere in the city. You have to remember that this was an honor-shame culture, so everything about who you, it was everything about who you were connected to and what kind of financial resources you had in your pocket. This is what made people in Corinth feel a sense of Shame and honor, or importance and non-importance. Honor and shame via money and status. Three is play. Three is play, and this is very much like Denver. I mean, I can't think of one that's more like Denver. Uh, you know, we're known for the transience of our city, and, you know, I just imagine, I, I actually was in New York City in October, and I went to an event at a church in New York City, and I would ask people, it's like, man, you know, obviously New York City's super transient. Hey, what brought you to New York City? And it was all like, you know, uh, you know, it's like, I, I work in finance, you know, or I work on Wall Street, or I work, I work on Broadway. These are real conversations that I had with people at this church, and it's like, people move to New York City for career. People move to Denver for play, you know. It's like most people that you meet here that are transient, transplants in, it's like I didn't move here for a career. In fact, I didn't even have a job that I, when I moved here. I just want to hike and ski and camp. My brain's out, you know. And then I'm going I'm to run out of money and I'm going to move back to Texas, you know. There's my classic joke. Uh, there's my classic joke, you know. It's like play. And, and Corinth was known for play and pleasure. It was known for play and pleasure. And the reason, um, every year, 
uh, Corinth, every other year, excuse me, Corinth hosted what's called the Isthmian Games, uh, which were right under the Olympics themselves in importance. So people idolized fitness and body image and physical play. And along with play is the idolizing of pleasure. They just loved having a good time in Corinth. We, people, people rolled in, they could have sex, they could have pleasure, they could have play, and then they could roll out of the city. And finally is spirituality, kind of like vague, random spirituality from kind of all kinds of different backgrounds. The city was pagan and pluralistic. It was pagan and pluralistic. So it's like, man, you know, if you were a follower of Jesus in Corinth, you were a minority. And it is nothing new. You feel this at work. It's like you feel this on your boss. You're probably one of the few Jesus followers that you know in your spheres of influence, right? And it's nothing new. This is how it was in Corinth. There were people in Corinth from all over the world who believed in and worshipped all kinds of gods. And if you looked over the skyline of Corinth, you would see temples of pagan gods and goddesses everywhere. They were known for their kind of like worldly spirituality, like anything goes spirituality. Now, Paul had rolled into this city, uh, defined by these four things, statue of Aphrodite right there and said, hey, let me tell you about this king. His name is Jesus. He's died on the cross for your sin. He's been raised from the dead. And if you follow him, you can have eternal life. And people start following the way of Jesus in Corinth and the church in Corinth is planted. And Paul, like I said, he planted this church, but he also pastored this church. This was very rare for Paul. He actually stayed in Corinth for longer than he's stayed most places, places. And he pastored it for 18 months. But eventually he moves on. He goes on to plant other churches in other cities and move on to other things. And over time, he receives word that the church in Corinth is not doing well. Uh, in fact, we're gonna, you're going to see this next week as we study on in chapter 1, but this group of people called Chloe's people. Chloe was a, a businesswoman, a prominent businesswoman, influential businesswoman, had likely made a lot of money. Uh, a lot of people say that the church in Corinth started in her house. Uh, it says Chloe's people had come to Paul and said, Hey, Paul, you need to know that the church you planted in Corinth is a mess. It's a wreck. And, uh, and in fact, what you go on to find is that the reason it's a wreck, and we're going to see this week in and week out, is because the culture of the city had come to have sway over the culture of the church. And it's like, man, <laughs> the exact opposite of Jesus' intention had happened. What happened in, Cor in the church in Corinth is that instead of the church in Corinth going out and, ha and having sway over the culture of the city and taking Jesus to the city, the city had come into the church. And what you find, and you'll see all, of, all four of these themes woven in and out of the letter to the, the first letter to the church in Corinth, is that their sexuality looks no different than the city. And this is one of the big themes of the letter, that Paul's writing them saying, hey, your sexuality is supposed to be distinct from the sexuality of the city, but it's looking exactly the same. And what you're going to find, we'll find this in like chapters 4, 5, 6, is that the church in Corinth are now having sex with each other. You know, just imagine that. You're like, oh. No, I don't think that's good. And in fact, it gets so bad that one guy's having sex with his stepmom. This is true. Jonathan's going to have a great time preaching that text, you know? It's like, <laughs> uh, you know, it's like, man, the sexuality of the city had come to have sway over the sexuality of the church. And Paul goes, hey, guys, we are called to be a beacon in our city, the light of Jesus. Your sexuality cannot look like the sexuality of the city. Two is money. Uh, you find out that, that, that uh, the church is doing a couple of things, and th these are things that we're going to explore as we get deeper into the year. Uh, the, church is, uh, the church is so greedy that they've started uh, suing one another. So imagine like one of you on this side of the room gets mad at somebody on this side of the room, and you go, you know what, I'm going to take you to court, and I'm going to sue you for everything you got. It's like that's happening 
in the church in Corinth. Imagine how awkward their gatherings were. There were probably about 60 people there. It's like, that's too small for comfort, right? They're suing each other, but they're also dividing along socioeconomic lines, and, and, and they're saying, hey, the poor people belong over here, the wealthy people belong over here, and, and Paul's writing this letter, hey, going, hey, the way you handle your money and the way you think about money cannot match the culture of the city. Next is like play and pleasure. Uh, the people in Corinth so loved pleasure, and this is one of the things that we're going to find out. They so loved pleasure that they were having these feasts that were communion meals. And they did communion a little bit differently than us. They did a big meal. And people were loving it so much that they were starting to get drunk on the communion wine, okay? And we're going to find this later on in 1 Corinthians, that they're like, you know what? I'm loving what Jesus did, his blood on the cross in my place. I'll take one glass and two glass and three glass and four glass. And Paul's going, no, 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 no. You must look different than the city. The culture of the city cannot have sway over the culture of the church. And finally, vague spirituality. They started to believe all kinds of weird theological claims that have nothing to do with the way of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, we'll see that some of them were even denying the bodily resurrection of Jesus, going, Jesus just kind of like spiritually rose from the dead. And Paul's going, hey, listen to me. If Jesus did not physically rise from the dead, our faith is worthless. It is in vain. We should go party it up, right? And so they're believing all kinds of different things. The culture of the city had come to have sway over the culture of the church. This is the primary problem that Paul is addressing in 1 Corinthians. And Paul writes this letter to address all of this and show them what faithfulness to Jesus looks like in a place like Corinth and to show us what faithfulness to Jesus looks like in a place like Denver. Them allowing the culture of the city to define the culture of the church had wrecked everything. And the church in Corinth is a mess. Now here's what we've done. Over the first part of this year, we spent our time in Acts chapter 2 looking at the beautiful, ideal vision of the church. And now we're moving into 1 Corinthians, and we're looking at the anti-vision of the church, okay? Seeing what it looks like for us to walk out of our mess back into life with God. Now, as Paul, as the Apostle Paul begins his letter to this very messy and very, very, very broken down church, he begins it in the most shocking way. Like, could not be more shocking how he begins to address this church that's, like, sleeping with each other and sleeping with stepmoms and drinking too much of the communion wine and denying the resurrection. It could not be more shocking how he starts this letter. Like, if I had, I was thinking about this, and it's like, you know, I was a part of the team uh, that, that started the Heights, and it's like, I just imagined myself, it's like, you know, I, I started the Heights, and I was here for seven years, and then me and my family kind of move on, and I'm pastoring another church in another part of the country, doing something else, and uh, Jonathan texts me. And he's like, hey, man, you won't believe what's happened. You won't believe what's happened. It's like, man, we got people hooking up with each other. We got a guy sleeping with his stepmom. We've got people, I found a couple people back in the stairwell drinking too much of the communion wine last week. It's like, man, if I was away and I heard you guys were doing this, my letter would have started something like, what are you idiots thinking? Like, what are you doing? Jesus is so much better than this. But the Apostle Paul doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He doesn't, and I love this about this letter, he doesn't start with harsh rebuke. He starts with tender words of affirmation. It's wild. It's wild. And what I love about this is it shows us how the living God relates to us when we feel like our life is a mess, when we feel like we are broken down, and when we feel like we just are getting into sin patterns over and over and over and we can't break it, he comes in with the most gentle, tender words of affirmation. 
Now, these people are at their worst. Their church is a total mess. They're jacked up in their discipleship to Jesus and jacked up in their life together. And what can happen when we find ourselves at our worst, at a low spot, kind of like at a place where we know Jesus would not affirm us, uh, affirm us of being, you start to question three things. And some of you might be asking these kinds of questions today. You start to question your, ability, your identity, your ability, and your future. Like you find yourself with the sexual addiction. You find yourself at the bottom of the pit of a drug addiction. You find yourself in a relational breakdown with family and friends. You find yourself kind of wandering away from the faith that you once had, and you can start to ask these kinds of questions when you find yourself in a mess. You start to ask the identity question. You ask, man, who am I? Like, I didn't think my life would go this way. I didn't think I was capable of these kinds of things. You start to ask the ability question, and some of you might be asking this question this morning. If you find yourself in a mess, the ability question, can I even change? Like, is it possible for me to change? And finally, we start to ask the future question. What's going to happen to me? It's like I'm putting myself on a trajectory. I want to be on a different trajectory, but if I, if I stay on this trajectory, what in the world is going to happen to me? And in these opening lines, in the first nine verses, instead of starting with harsh rebuke, Paul reminds the people and reminds us of our identity, our ability, and our future. Okay? So let's, let's look at this, starting in verse 2. Let's look at this starting in verse 2. The first thing he does is he roots them and he roots us in our identity in Christ. Look at this. He says, to the church of God at Corinth, to those sanctified, that means cleansed or pure or holy. So he goes, I know everything you've done. Here's the truest thing about you. You are sanctified. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints, circle that word, with all those in every place who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord, both their Lord and ours. The first thing Paul does is he secures them in their identity in Christ. He says, man, if you've believed on Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter who you've been sleeping with and how much you've had to drink. It doesn't matter what kind of pit you are in. You are, look at these words, sanctified saints. I love that. He goes, man, I know all the bad things you've done. Chloe's people snitched on you guys. Like, I know you've been sleeping with each other. I know you've been drinking too much of the communion wine. I know you guys have div I've been dividing along socioeconomic lines. I know some of you freaks have denied the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but here's the truest thing about you. You are sanctified saints. What does that mean? He goes, man, the truest thing about you is not what you've done. It's that Jesus Christ has sanctified you. It's that through his life, death, and resurrection, he has cleansed you of everything you would do in the past. He has cleansed you of everything you will do in the future. And he's given you a new trajectory. But not only sanctified, he calls them saints. I love this. Do you know that Paul never looks at the church in the New Testament and defines them as sinners? This is wild. Even in the light of everything that's coming in like 1 Corinthians 2 through 16, he goes, here's the truest thing about you. You are saints. What does it mean to be a saint? It means somebody set apart for the favor of God. You've been cleansed. You've been made holy. And you've been set apart by the living God for a bright future. This is the truest thing about you. Now, we, we tend to find our identity in all sorts of things. Uh, what we do, what we don't do. 
And what can happen is if you start trying to find your identity in anything other than what God says is true about you, it will leave you on an emotional roller coaster. Henry Nouwen uh, was a Catholic priest and writer, and he wrote a lot around the idea of identity. And he, he introduces us to what, we, what he calls the five lies of identity, that we're all kind of sucked away from what God says about us, and we're sucked into these things. Some of us, uh, we believe the first lie, that we are what we have, that I am what I have. This is the first lie of identity. This is the identity of, like, things and possessions and consumption. I am what I have. I am the house that I have. I am the car that I drive. I am the amount of money in my bank account. Others of us believe the second one. I am what I do. This is the lie of identity around accomplishment and achievement and success. Guys, this is my lie. This is mine. It's like I am what I do. I am good if this thing's going well. I am bad if it's not, you know. It's like I am what I do. Others of us are have the third. It's like we love affirmation and reputation. I am what other people say or think of me. This is the lie of Instagram. If I can just project myself that my life is going a certain way, people will love me. Others of us, whenever we find ourselves at a low spot, actually all of us are probably like this, and this would have been the lie that the church in Corinth was tempted to believe, that I am nothing more than my worst moment. And it's like when you start to think of what defines your life, you can think of nothing more than the worst thing that you've done or the worst thought that you've had. I'm nothing worse. Uh, I'm nothing more than my worst moment. Others of us are crushing it, and we think this, and this is the roller coaster. I am nothing less than my best. I, I am nothing less than my best moment. I'm nothing less than the promotion that I got, or the amount of money that I have because I've got a lot of money. So let me just ask you this: Which one of these are you finding your identity in? You see, at the heart of our culture is an identity crisis. I am primarily my sexual orientation. I am my most recent failure. So nobody could love me, especially God. I am what people are saying about me. And you get low. Or you get high. I am the promotion I just got. I am the house that I just bought. And what can happen is that if you find your identity in anything other than Jesus, it will send you into an emotional spiral. It will suffocate you. But Paul comes in, and he comes in with, when these people are at their lowest, a complete mess. And he says, you are not what you have. You are not what you do. You are not defined by your sin. You are not defined by the mess that you've gotten yourself in. When you became a Christian, your core identity is what God says is true about you. And God says you are sanctified saints. So do you know this? Do you know this right now? That no matter who you've slept with this weekend, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, you are holy and set apart for the favor of God. That no matter how much you had to drink last night because you couldn't handle life, you are holy because of the work of Jesus Christ and you are set apart for the favor of God. That no matter what kind of relational breakdown you're enduring right now, because of your selfishness and sin against somebody else, you are holy if your faith is in Jesus Christ and set apart for the favor of God. Paul goes, man, think of all of the ways Paul could have started this letter. Think of like how heartbroken Paul was to hear these people were here. And he goes, no, 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 let me just, before we get into all of that, let me just remind you of your identity. You are set apart for God. You are cleansed of all of your sin. Beautiful. But he keeps going and he starts talking about ability. So first he starts with identity, then he moves on to ability. Look at verses four through seven. He says this, I always thank my God for you. So Paul's thankful for this church. By the way, can I just say something? 
One of the things I notice, this is, this is free, this isn't, my, it isn't in my notes, but one of the things I love this is Paul has, one of the things I love about this is that Paul has the ability to look at a tremendously broken church and see beauty. I always thank my God for you. And one of the things that's happened in our, in our cultural moment of deconstruction is that somebody in the church does one bad thing and, some, and everybody writes the church completely off. And Paul can look at this broken church with full of broken people and he can go, man, I see beauty there. Those people are not like anti-God, they're sanctified saints and I always thank my God for you. And then he goes on to say this, and he starts talking about ability. I always thank my God for you because of the grace given to you in Christ Jesus that you were, here's the key line, underline this, enriched in him in every way. So here's what he's saying there. We're going to talk about this in a minute. That you are not in spiritual poverty. You've been enriched in him in every way. In all speech and all knowledge. In this way, the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. So that you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whenever we find ourselves in a mess, relational mess, sexual mess, financial mess, we start to doubt we can change. Some of you are there. You're like, man, I'm in a mess. I'm there. That's me. And you start to think, there's no way I can ever change. There's no way I can ever get out of this mess. There's no way this mess will ever be cleaned up. We start to doubt our ability to do anything about the mess that we have gotten ourselves in. And Paul says this, do you know that you have been enriched in Christ Jesus in every way? In other words, you are not in the spiritual poverty you think, yourself, you think of yourself in. You have everything you need to change. He says this, he says even more that you do not lack any spiritual gift. He looks at this broken body of believers and says to them, hey, I want you to remember this. You do not lack any spiritual gifting. In other words, you might think you don't have the ability to change, but through Christ Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, you have everything you need to do everything God wants you to do. Gosh, I love that. What a beautiful truth. What a beautiful truth. Don't let your mess block your vision of God's ability to change you. But there's more. The final thing he does is he, he talks about the future. Look at this. This is verses 8 and 9. He kind of sets their sights on the future. He will also, Jesus will also strengthen you to the end. So you're not going to run out of strength on your journey to the end of the life God has for you. So that you will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. You were called by him into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. When we find ourselves in a mess, we start to doubt that our, that our future is bright. We start to think, man, we're spiraling into the abyss where life is just going to fall apart. And Paul says, remember that it is God, not you, that holds your future. That he will strengthen you to the end that he is faithful to you and will not quit on you in the middle of your sin and mess. Your future is incredibly bright. One of my favorite pastors, Ray Ortland, created a, a little mantra for his church. He pastored in Nashville, in California, in the Nashville for a long time. And he says it this way. He says, he goes, Here, here's the mantra of the Christian faith. I am a complete idiot, but my future is incredibly bright and anybody can get in on it. 
And it's like, man, this was the mantra of the, of the church in Corinth. I am a complete idiot, but my future is incredibly bright because of Christ Jesus, and anybody can get in on it. Guys, this is what makes the gospel of Christianity such good news, that our God loves broken people who have sinned and are sinning and find themselves in a complete mess. So let me just say this, and I just want to speak really honestly. Some of you are here this morning, and you've gotten yourself into a mess. Like you've lived outside of how God's called you to, to live and you've made a mess of your life and you, you wake up every morning and you're like, gosh, I can't get out of this mess. And the reality is, and this is what's really popular to do, the reality is whenever we find ourselves in a mess, the really popular thing to do is start blaming everybody else for our mess. It's like, dude, I, you know, it's like, well, they said this and they did this and, you know, so-and-so did this to me and I can't recover, it's made a mess. But the reality is, that most of the times when we make a mess, guys, it is our fault that we need to own. It's our fault. Our life is a mess because we give ourselves over to sin. We've lived outside of God's design. Here's some examples of that. You're hooking up with people and feel sexually unsatisfied. It's like, and you're just giving into the hookup thing. And you're like, man, and I feel sexually unsatisfied, I feel lonely. Maybe you're addicted to pornography and so you can't have sex with your wife anymore because you're addicted to these images that are just unrealistic. And now your marriage is like falling apart because of it. Maybe like if I can just speak really honestly, you're selfish and so your marriage is on the rocks. And it's because you're selfish. Maybe you're neglecting your duty as a parent so your kids are constantly struggling. It's like, it's sin. Sin causes messes. Maybe you're a jerk so nobody wants to be your friend. Have you ever thought about that? Maybe you're a jerk so nobody wants to be your friend so you're lonely. Maybe you're lazy so you got let go from your job. Guys, sin causes messes. This is what sin does. This is what Satan lures us into. H.H. Farmer says it this way, that when we live against the grain of the universe, we get splinters, and they hurt. It's a mess. And we have to be honest about this. Where Jesus starts is with us owning our personal sin instead of blaming it on everybody else. But here's the good news of 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 9. Jesus doesn't quit on us in the mess. It's like if you're in a mess and you've, you're like, yeah, like that's me. I'm lazy. I'm addicted to porn. I'm drinking too much. I'm, I'm selfish. Mine this week that Jesus was convicting me of is unbelief, that I'm having a hard time believing the promises of God. So I'm like wrestling with anxiety. Jesus has been talking to me about that. But he meets us in the mess and he says, listen to me, if you belong to me, your mess does not define you. Paul's like, man, we're going to get into the mess. We're going to talk about sex. We're going to talk about money. We're going to talk about power. We're going to talk about pleasure. We're going to talk about drinking too much. We're going to talk about all that. But you need to hear me. If you belong to Jesus Christ, your mess, that mess you're in right now does not define you. 
you have a new identity. You are a sanctified saint, cleansed, set apart for the favor of God. You have the ability through the power of the Holy Spirit to change. Through the good news of the gospel, he's given you a new ability. And you have a bright future. And today might be the day where the Holy Spirit of God is tapping you on the shoulder and waking you up and going, hey, if you continue on this trajectory, you're going to spiral into a bigger mess. But I have a better future for you. Paul doesn't start with harsh rebuke, man. He starts with this beautiful and tender reminder. You are not defined by your mess. Through Jesus Christ, you have a new identity, a new ability, and a new future. So let's live into it. Now, I want to I name something that makes the God of Christianity so unique. You see, when most people find themselves, themselves in a mess, we want affirmation. You're good, like you're doing everything right. And ultimately what we want is we want aff affirmation of our self-destruction. Just keep doing that. That sexual thing, keep doing it. That money thing, keep doing it. That drug addiction, just keep doing it. You just want affirmation. And man, I want to put airbags around this. I just felt, feel led to say this. Um, this is what a therapeutic culture does, is they affirm us in our self-harm. Are you guys aware of this? And it's like, guys, here's the airbags. I've been in therapy this calendar year. It's like, we're not anti-therapy. But do you know that God loves you too much to affirm you in your self-harm? God did not come through Jesus Christ to affirm us in our self-harm. He came to transform us by his grace through the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And this is what he wants for you. Jesus came to rescue. Jesus came to save. So if you're a follower of Jesus here, I just want to stand up in front of you and to end this and lay in the plane. I just want to stand up in front of you and I just want to say, do you know your identity? Do you know your ability? Do you know your future? We're going to spend some time in response and I just want to ask you a question, man. Is there any place where the culture of the city is having sway over the culture of your heart? Is it sex? Is it money? Is it play? Is it pleasure? Is it a vague spirituality that has nothing to do with the way of Jesus, nothing to do with the Christian scriptures? And let's bring it before Jesus and be reminded of our identity, ability, and future change. Let's do it. If you're not a Christian here, I just want to remind you, and Jonathan's going to come up and he'll tell us how, how to take next steps in a second. I just want to say, man, if you find yourself in a mess, you need to know that God loves you in your mess, but he, leave, he loves you too much to leave you in it. And you can change by faith in Jesus Christ, a reorientation around Jesus Christ. You can be given a new identity, cleansed of everything you've done in the past, you can be given a fresh ability and strength to change. You might have, been try you might have tried everything, and you're like, I just can't change. And you, this is the moment where you need to go, Holy Spirit of God, I need power. I want to change. And you need a fresh hope for the future. If that's you, come to faith in Jesus today. So let me pray for us, and then Jonathan's going to come and talk to us about how we will respond. Jesus, thank you 
Thank you that whenever you come to us and you find us in a mess, you do not come with harsh words of rebuke, but gentle words of change, gentle words of invitation, gentle words of reminder that through you we've been given a new identity, a new ability, and a new future. So we just invite you, Holy Spirit, we want to live in light of these things this week. Come, Holy Spirit. Do your work. Soften our hearts. Help us repent and return. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.